Okie dokie, everybody. Welcome back into the We Shall Not Sleep podcast. Thank you so much for joining us once again this week. It's been an amazing journey so far, and I'm so humbled by it. The fact that this is a collective journey just always reminds me that I couldn't do this by myself. And this isn't about me or what I have to offer. It's about the guests. And it's about what the Holy Spirit is doing. So thank you so much for spreading that around. This is a small community, and it's worth it. It's 100% worth it. So thank you for everything that you have done, and please continue to like, leave comments, feedback, and if you have any suggestions about future topics or guests, please feel free to drop an email at wsnspodcast at gmail.com. Alrighty, so the guest this week, somebody who's certainly played an important role in my life, I call him my hero for a reason, many people, they certainly can't relate to him not because of his passion for the church and for his particular set of skills, which he'll talk about, but his certain calling. It's a road less traveled, and this individual has had to do a lot of convincing and showing people that the world of safety and security is a value. It's not just a priority. And how do we make that a value in our churches? So from a career that has spanned 25 years of firefighting, police work, medical examiner's office, floor nursing, safety plant coordinator, to now director of campus safety at Spring Arbor University, this individual, along with their academic experience, has a wealth of information to share. Many people call him friend, a lot of people call him mentor or teacher. Some call him brother. One person calls him husband, but only I can call him my father. Please welcome in Scott Crable. Dad, what's going on? Thanks for joining me this week, and how are you doing this evening? Hey, doing really good. Yeah. It's uh, great to be here, be with you, and uh, go through this uh, discussion. Yeah, the uh, I think it's an important one. I'm glad that uh, you're able to set aside some of your time that we can uh, discuss some things that I, I think that you're passionate about. And, you know, honestly, I know this might go to your head or something, but you are a highly requested guest amongst my friends and other family members. So uh, when I have to uh, at least tell them about this ahead of time that you were here tonight. So, anyway, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to pump you up with a lot of, a lot of pride. But you, apparently, you were a very hotly sought after guest. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you got it, you know. But <laughs> that's right. I think it's interesting to, the difference in our generations and some of the things that we talk about, and looking at the issues in today and um, some of our values that we have. There is seems to be a, a broader separation in the generations now than maybe what there was before. And you're just talking about like interests and what we actually like to talk well, about. Well, I think it's, no, I think it's with the culture and, and just what society's demanding. Um, from me, from a, a practical standpoint, um, I think technology um, basically is uh, solving all your problems and you don't really have to think about it. So I'm just seeing there's a bigger and bigger gap from the independent person as a to the to the dependent person. Hmm. Yeah. 
Well, I, that's one of the things that, you know, at least podcasts, depending on which one you're listening to, can offer a little bit of insight, maybe some wisdom into uh, those those people that you're talking about. So right. it provides a good platform. Um, you know, as, as I had with many guests on here, and I know the story, but other people won't, you know, I've asked you many times over the years is, you know, as you're my dad, I love you to death. You've sacrificed so much for our family. But one of the things that I want everyone to at least talk about when, when I have them on here is, how did you come to Christ? What is your? How did you even get into the church? Because I know you weren't raised necessarily in the church. It was because of outside influence. So can you describe briefly for those who don't know you, like what was your journey to Christ like? Well, I think uh, it goes way back to even when I was real little. It seemed that... Um, I mean, we were always raised with the idea that God existed, that there was a God, um, and that was based on just, you know, the times. I mean, I was I was born in 1963, and so when you went to school, um, you know, we still prayed. Uh, I was involved in the Boy Scouts, and so we still prayed, and we still did things for, you know, it was God, country, uh, fellow man. Um, and then I did have exposures to church, um, a couple of different churches that I went to when, like, when I was in grade school. So the concept of God outside of Easter and Christmas was still a part, even though we were probably like a secular family. And then it was still, you know, the, the um, values of being polite and kind to one another um, it just seemed to be that moral uh, compass was always kind of like similar. Um, I, I thought about um, one time uh, there was a, um, a, a cartoon, it was a claymation um, that was put on by the Lutheran church um, called Davy and Goliath. And I used to watch it all the time and I had no idea that it was actually a Christian or a church-based cartoon it was just Davy and Goliath about a boy named Davy and his dog named Goliath, and the dog, you know, talked. And it was right. pretty cool. Yeah. But it seemed like always at the end, it was always this lesson that they, you know, they talked about. And then they always talked about God. It was like it was never really funny, but there was always, you know, of course, Davy was always getting into a problem, and he was always, always, you know, there was always this big moral dilemma that he was trying to figure out in life. So, again, it was just all that subtle exposure. So God was not foreign. However, because of some significant things that happened in my life with my father leaving, um, and life got really tough. Mm-hmm. And so the stresses of life, and basically just came to a point where I realized that I just couldn't do this by myself. I just got to the point where the demands of trying to help my mom with a house and, and getting into that age where... You know, you just you just felt like you just can't do this, mm-hmm. and so I was yeah. you know I was invited to church and um, I was fourteen uh, when I just answered the call. The Holy Spirit really moved uh, in my life, and um, I, I would say that I probably had one of them Damascus experiences because it was very emotional. Um, it was you know uh, deep, a deep thought process. It was it was a critical decision. It was like the light switch came on. And it was a it was a life changing decision. My my whole lifestyle, up to that point, um, you know, was probably going down a different path. But that day, I was on a Sunday. I remember that that day at Central Wesleyan Church, when there was an altar call, and I went forward, 
and um, and I asked Christ into my life, and from that point on, it it uh, my life always changed. Late a couple of years later, I was baptized on a canoe trip with our youth group in the Pierre Marquette River, and so you know just went from there and heavily involved in the youth group and became a youth leader and. You know, Sunday school, it just basically the church kind of like raised me after that. Um, just, you know, socially being involved in a lot of different activities. And that, that kept me out of the wrong groups. That kept me out of the influence of drugs and alcohol and, you know, some other stuff. So I had really good influence. So, you know, God had a, was moving in my life and probably didn't even realize it because I had really no supervision. So growing up in the church, uh, Keeping busy, not being able to be influenced by a lot of bad things, um, really was, uh, I think, a significant, a significant part of my uh, child development and going into my my teens. Uh, seems like I just never got in trouble because of that morality that I had of, of right and wrong. So, and, and how old were you then? Like when you. Well, how, how old were you on that day then when you had that altar call at Central Wesleyan? Well, I, was, I believe I was 14 years old. Um, might have been 13. I think I was just going into seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and what's, what's interesting about your little testimony there is that um, your generation of people, you know, those, those who are like right on the edge of like for baby boomers and Gen Xers, you know, it, what's interesting is that you guys are so much um, intertwined with that idea of old family values, and we're not talking—we're not talking about the all the values that the culture held. You're talking about maybe the common, more—I uh, would say—widespread values that that families had, um, which I heard all the time. You know, growing up, specifically for me was like this shared shared morality, shared ethics. Uh, when you did something, like it's foreign. Like I can't imagine going to like a playground as a kid growing up and being scolded by another parent because there was like this common understanding. But that was kind of like the, the era you grew up in. You know, kids seem to, I know that com- comedians have joked about for years, kids seem to be quote unquote smarter, had more street street smarts back in the day. Like the survival of the fittest was much more apparent. Like, you're not going to see yourself walking down the train tracks with headphones in and get hit by a train. That didn't happen. Of course, you didn't have headphones, you know, 40 years ago. But you know, there, there seems to have, have been a loss, at least in my opinion, from what your generation experiences, kids, versus my own. And I don't know if that's technology or if it's just maybe it's being outside more. What, what Do you understand, I guess, what I'm getting right. at? like, Well, I think there's, there's several factors. One, I think the... I think the interactive, the interactive part about people, human beings interacting with one another, you learn about one another. You learn about people's traits, personalities, and there's influences there. And so you, I can think of all of the, um, the people in our neighborhood, all the kids growing up, and, and you really knew their likes and dislikes, and you knew what, you know, you knew you had resources. If you needed a friend to help you fix a bike, you knew which one would help you fix a bike, and you knew who couldn't fix a bike. So there's a lot of things that you you know you had to learn and discover on your own. Like technology today just gives you the answer. It's just the answer, but it doesn't give you 
the solution process. It's kind of like when you do math, yeah. you know, it's like you can you can get the right answer, but you have to show your work. You know, how right. did you get there? And I think the the best way it's, that it was it was told me a few years ago was a concept or an idea called intellectual curiosity. And that's what your generation lacks. Nobody cares how things are made or where they come from or how you get from A to Z. All we care about is whether we get to Z and everything in between doesn't matter and that's what we have computers for. They do all the thinking. You see it in the automotive industry. You see it in, um, you know, um, different things where it's all self-help. An automobile back in the day didn't have a computer and the driver was, you know, it was a driving experience. So you had to learn how to lane change. You had to learn how to back up. You had to learn how to control your speed. And so when you look at a comparison of just the automobile, if you look at what they've done with the automobile and how they've taken the human decision-making process out, cruise control, you no longer have to regulate the speed yourself. You know, backup cameras, you no longer have to turn your head back and make a decision or a judgment. Lane changing, you don't even have to look and make a lane change because the car will give you a beep if it does it. And then they got these cars now that will park themselves because nobody even wants to learn how to parallel park anymore. So mm -hmm. it's just that, I mean, I know that's a, it's just that whole concept. And from my generation, when you start seeing that, I, we see it as a loss. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. You know, so there's a skill set there. Now, if I was to say, you know, if I was king for the day, you've heard me say this before. So if you had, if I was king for the day, I would tell every person, and I've kind of thought about this for a while, I would tell every person to learn the basic skills of life. Think, think about what our, our, our basic core needs are. Food. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. How many people don't know how to cook? Mm -hmm. Okay. If you don't know how to cook, how are you going to feed yourself? Well, you're going to be dependent upon somebody else or some other thing to feed you. Okay. Shelter. You should learn the basic fundamentals of how your house operates, how your heating works, how your plumbing works, how your electrical works. I'm not saying you have to be, you know, expert. I'm saying you have to have a basic understanding to problem solve because it's your household. If your plumbing goes out in the middle of the night, and you're dependent upon a plumber, you can't get water or you can't get your drain fixed. You don't know how to even use Mr. Mr. Drano or something like that. Okay, same way with a, you know, with a light fixture. If your light switch doesn't work because your light switch is broke or it's bad, you're going to have to call an electrician so you can have the lights come on in your house. It's just the basic fundamentals. Automobile, transportation. You've got to get to work. So you should have at least a good understanding of how your automobile works so that you can troubleshoot it. Of course, today, I mean, there's very, very few people can fix their own vehicles, but you still need to have an understanding so that you don't make the problem worse. So I just think about all that. And, um, you know, there, there's people that, you know, they weld and they, they fix things and they do things. These are skills that are no longer valued, but they're still required because we live in a physical world and that's not going to change. And there are some things that technology has replaced for the better, I admit that, but there are other things that technology will never be able to to change or, so, or replace. Yeah. yeah, which would be what? What would you? Well, I mean, it's it's the, I think it's the human the human interaction, the compassion. What if we didn't have a doctor? We just had a robot. Okay, 
and he wasn't able to understand, you know, what a patient's going through, like what um, the ability to empathize. Yeah, empathize, and then and look at the whole the whole um, picture. Whole, the whole picture, the whole story. Yeah, because context. because there's a lot of a lot of background, a lot of history going on with this with this patient, a lot of influence about yeah. what's going on in their life. So, gotcha. yeah, there's certainly there's certainly challenges. I, I know that, you know, because of like for some millennials, you know, like I didn't grow up with a cell phone, so I knew how I knew what to do as a kid without a cell phone. I was in that kind of sweet spot where I grew up outside. You know, I grew up with with friends. You know, uh, playing games, playing hide and seek. Getting, getting into a little bit of trouble, building a fort. Uh, but I would absolutely agree with you that to, to a certain point, to a certain extent, there was a, a point where I plateaued where my intellectual curiosity started to wane a little bit mm -hmm. because of the, the allures of what technology can do, which I think are great. You know, like technology, like you said, it, it is, I think, well, maybe what you're referring to, it, referring to is a tool that can be used for a lot of good. Right. But if it's a crutch, you know, it's the difference between you know, actually getting the answer, like you said, if someone gives you a, the, the answer to that math problem or they teach you how to do it because right. you're not really learning a whole lot. I can learn a fact. I can figure out, well, I, can, I can Google something, but does that mean I actually learned it? I right. just, I've learned how to get the answer, not why the answer is that way. Right. And I think there's this concept of need and want because you just kind of sparked a memory. I remember... Uh, way long time ago when I was going to Jackson Community College and I think I took a it was like an EMT class or something it was when I was um, I think it was when I was still working at the police department maybe but anyway this was before we had a personal computer before personal computers were really popular some people had them but we had taken a test or something in this class and I inquired about the grade and the professor said, well, it's, it's online or you have to check it on the computer. And I said, well, I don't have a computer. And he looked at me like I was from Mars, you know. It's like, you mean you don't have a computer, you know. And I, I remember, you know, my sarcastic point. I said, well, do you have a tractor? And he said, well, no, I don't have a tractor. He goes, I don't need a, I don't need a tractor. And I said, well, I don't need a computer. And apparently, you know, what he was basically saying is you don't, you don't have a computer, you may not think you need one, but eventually you're going to have to have one. And so I think that's what the process for my generation is that we were, we were able to do everything that we were doing in life without the technology. So what, what does the technology do other than make it, does it make it easier, faster, simpler, but it's still basically this, you're still doing the same things in life. You're adding, subtracting, you're storing files, you're, you're processing information, but is it, is it actually better? I can tell you a horror story about going to the doctor where they were just transferring to go paperless. They were transferring the paper files to the, to the computer, and it was like I was no longer a patient. I was just a number, and they didn't even have half of my stuff even transferred over and yet this was, you know, this was my medical record. So, you know, there are times when, when I think we think about it from our generation about what's, what's actually really good. And then there's this situation where why do we have to have it? Do we have to have it because it's the latest, greatest fad? Is it the newest mousetrap that's out there? Or are we just doing things because, you know, somebody's inventing it and they want to make money and they sell it? 
and 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 that that goes back to like my would have been my grandparents about getting a telephone and getting a cordless telephone and then getting an answering machine and then a VCR and then all these so you see these things progress. Do you think? And you, and you know, at, at our age, you think about what's happened in the last 25 years with technology. Think about what's going to happen in the next 25 years. Yeah. The mean, rate of advancement, it, it's, it's exponential. Right. Uh, and that, like, they say, like, the rate of advancement just with, can, like, just microchips and how, how much smaller they're getting uh, with processors, how much right. faster they're getting. You know, and that's where, I, and I have empathy. I think a lot of people, with us millennials who look at our parents, like, half, almost like half our parents' generation use technology the way it's supposed to be, and the other ones just completely reject it, and they have this kind of downtrodden look uh, on the other generations. It's like, and it causes like, like division. It's like we're we're raised, you know, my generation's raised in this. The technology was built by those who came before us, so right. millennials didn't invent this technology. Oh, right, right. We're just using it, and we're growing up right. in the world, but sometimes we feel attacked for utilizing it. Right. It's like intellectual curiosity. Well, if 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 we don't have that, and it's not our fault, then what are we supposed to do about it? You can't just become intellectually curious if you've been trained uh, for your entire life. For some of us, you know, upwards of 30 years, you don't just wake up one day and you're like, okay, I want to learn how to fix my car. I mean, some people, but an entire generation, uh, like it almost has to be taken away for, for some people to be forced right. to learn something. It has to be unavailable to them. I, I think I think the... The issue is not that the technology is bad or, or, you know, agreeing with what you said. I think the shift is more and more to technology and not on the, the problem solving or the intellectual curiosity. What I'm saying is we always, always were curious. We were very intellectually curious. Every kid that ever had Legos had intellectual curiosity. Mm -hmm. they, they built things. They built things up based on the picture. You know your Millennium Falcon, and then you tore it apart, right. and then you wanted to put it back together again. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. that what I'm saying is that you had that, and as you've gotten older, you'd rather do something on a screen with a 3D image now and, and stuff like that. So it's a progress, and what I'm saying is the fact that we're st we st we still need to build bridges, we still need to build roads, we still need to you know do manufacturing. We have to build things because everything you wear, touch, sit on, you know, has to be built. And yeah, even though we have robots that do that, they have to be designed. Yeah, they have to, people you know, are still building the robots. Right. And I and I'm I'm afraid that you know there's where's the creativity? So when you when you and, and, and you were in customer service, a computer and a and a an AI is not customer service. It is not customer service because it does not understand the problem. All it's trying to do is run through an algorithm. And fix the problem, you know right. that kind of thing. And you see a lot of that now. I mean, and that's what happened with my doctor's appointment. My 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 nurse was asking me what my prescriptions were because on the computer screen he was trying to figure out all there were was like seven selections, and he didn't know what they were. So he kept asking me, and I said sarcastically, "Why don't we call my doctor?" Oh yeah, that's you guys. So it's just like we got so caught up in this computer stuff that we forgot that we were actually in the point of source, the reference, you know, this is, and the chart had all that information in there. So, yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I have a, I have a lot of empathy for your generation and not pity. I'm not talking about pity, but things, things for, for you guys changed very quickly. Uh, it wasn't, you guys weren't necessarily prepared for 
a technological like revolution that that started ramping up was since the nineteen sixties because my the only constant like my generation has faced is change. We don't know what to do when things don't change. We get impatient when things don't change or improve. Uh, there was always been the latest and greatest, but the time period for the latest and greatest was much longer, you know, 50 years ago. And in society did not move as fast. So we have grown up with the ability to adapt, overcome, and improvise on the technological side uh, because if we weren't literate technologically, we'd fail in school. Right. We, you had to learn how to use these things because you wouldn't actually pass your test. You wouldn't, right. you wouldn't be able to study for your exam. You wouldn't be able to write your papers uh, in, in college. So it's not, it wasn't even a choice for us. We just like, here's, here is your world that you're going to grow up in. Here's the skills you now have to have because it's almost as if we've replaced, like the like you've mentioned it before, I don't need to repair my car, but I do need to know how to type because right. if I don't know how to use a keyboard and type, I'm going to be at a severe disadvantage. And like that's that's difficult. So the skills that we have, I think, ultimately are less important mm-hmm. <laughs> in your generation, but we do have a different set of skills. Right. Well, and I, and I think looking at it, from a maybe a 10,000 foot view too, and I could be wrong here, but when you think about the difference in generations, like the knowledge that I had going through school, you know, when you had to problem solve, when, when there was an issue came up, you had to go into your own database, your own skill set, your own experiences, and you had to draw with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, you didn't have a little box that you could type something in to get the answer. You had to have that answer within yourself and it was either a skill or experience or knowledge that you retained and fixing that problem. And, and today, think about the fact that if, you, if, if, a, if a person didn't have technology or Google or their phone for a month, mm-hmm. how would they live their life and how would they solve the little intricacies and the problems and the challenges they had? You know, And, and what we're seeing is, is today is the fact that for me, dealing with 18, 19, 20-year-olds, one of the problems I have is I assume that you know things that you should know. If, For example, if I tell one of my students to go unlock a door and they have a key ring, I assume they know how to use those keys and unlock a door. But I've had students who, when they put the key in the door, if they don't turn the key upside down, because sometimes you have a key that's it's upside down and you have to manipulate it, they'll try it one way, and if it doesn't work, then they're lost. So there's that no ability to, to you know, experience it. says, you know what? Sometimes you have to turn the key upside down. Why? Because I've opened up a thousand million doors, and sometimes the keys are upside down, sometimes the keys go in this way, sometimes you got to fuddle with the key a little bit to make the lock. Okay, but I've got people that have used the right key and they can't open the door. Yeah, and so that, that's just a you know just an example. Yeah, and you know that that's funny is because we have the ability for problem solving when it comes to you know searching for things, you know, especially online. But we know how to manipulate data to get results that we want. So it's it's taking the same mentality and applying it to something totally different, the virtual world. Because very rarely would would somebody my age try to look for something on Google with one search and not find something. So if I wanted to find out information, you, you and I are both 
uh, fans of Michigan history. Right. If we wanted to find out something that happened in Michigan, let's say 1947, let me just say that, I would type it in once, and let's say um, the first three answers didn't return anything I was looking for, and I just gave up. You know, like, oh, well, I guess I didn't find it. Right. I, my generation, we would never do that. My generation would never do that. However, right. I have helped the older generations out, and they've only tried one or two things. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, so I ask, what are you looking for? Why, well, why don't we try this? And, and so for sometimes us millennials look at the older generation and say, why didn't, why didn't you choose this? And then the response is, well, I didn't know I could do that. And so the, the roles are completely switched. So right. when we struggle opening a door, mm-hmm. the question is, why didn't you try to do it the other way? And we're like, I didn't know I could do that. You see, right. the parallels are in two totally different worlds. We've learned mm-hmm. two different, you want to talk about values, different skill sets placed with different values because the because the currency, there's not trades anymore, which are unfortunately going by the wayside. It is in infrastructure and technology. It's like, I don't know. I mean, I know some people my age who don't own a smartphone, but they know how to use a smartphone, right. you know, but... 60 years ago, did everyone, for the, I mean, just an example, did everyone know how to change a tire 60 years ago, 70 years ago growing yeah, up? Yeah, it was required in driver's training. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> See, like the, the thought of somebody not knowing how to do it, that'd be a shock, right? Right. Yeah, so th- there are parallels. Right. And But but, but, the, but see, the question is, is that if, do we still have flat tires in our physical world? We do. We yes. do. Yeah. That, okay, and so how do you get that tire changed with your cell phone? Yeah, but you that you call somebody who who comes and does but it. But what for if you. that person that comes doesn't know how to do it because they're in the cell phone world? Mm-hmm. See, there, there's like there's always somebody else to do something the old-fashioned way. Right. But the other thing too is that you just you just mentioned something about those two parallel worlds is that those three people or those those three things that you were looking for and you couldn't find them and you went to that person and you said, did you try this? And they said. I didn't know no. how to do that. But the person that did, they learned how to do that from somewhere. That was an experience that right, they had. Exactly. You're just not born with it. So, yeah. I, but I, I, I still say that there are basic things that all people should know. Because I, you know, with my upbringing, I want to be independent. I would never want to be dependent upon somebody else. Because, I mean, from the basic needs... In life, you know, food, shelter, those are things that, that are your responsibility. It's not my responsibility to feed, clothe, or shelter somebody else while they're doing something else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like society. Okay, if I'm raising your kids, what are you doing? Right. Right. That's what I, I mean. Well, that's that's the thing. And I think for for those who don't know you, the idea that you no one's no one's coming to help you. Uh, I'm the only one that can be the source of dependability. Um, I, I'm gonna have to rely on myself. That that came from a more of a rough upbringing. And you you mentioned to you mentioned it earlier for those who don't know what was what was life like for you growing up. And I, I guess I'm, which we'll get to that question here in a second. But what. You kind of have mentioned it was a little difficult. What? Why? Why was it difficult? What were your circumstances? Well, it's I. I kind of like live the best of both worlds. So um, I was raised in your typical, I would say, middle class, you know, average uh, home. Um, I had a mom and a dad, and we had you know there was three children, and we lived on you know a, a street in the city, 
in a little town, uh, you know, in the United States of America, and life was just great. I, um, I went to I went to school, and you know, I came home, and we had you know the we grilled hamburgers on Sunday, and it just you know everything seemed to be good, and then um, you know at that point, my father was a fireman, and so he, you know, back in the day when we had um, you know the show and tell. And, you know, you talked about what your dad did and all those different things. So my dad was a fireman and, and you know, he wore a uniform and he was considered, you know, a hero. And so all the kids were kind of like, oh, your dad's a fireman. Yeah. And then there were days like when we'd have um, uh, like fire prevention week and he would come and I'd get, you know, he'd, he'd come and give me a hug. And all the other kids are like, wow, you know, the fireman, you know, and the coolest time. The coolest time, it's a funny story, the coolest time was when when every now and then my dad would, when I was in grade school and I, it was lunchtime, he would say, how about if I bring you McDonald's? Mm-hmm. That's right? a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal back then. That was huge. So I would go to lunch and I wouldn't have a lunch, you know. And so all the kids are like, ha, ha, Scott ain't got no lunch. Scott ain't got no lunch. Ha, ha, ha. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden the doors would open and my dad would come in with his uniform. You know, a fireman comes in with McDonald's. So it was like a double dose of Superman, right? So you come over and then, you know, it's typical the way school is, you know, that now everybody wants to be your friend. You know, you get to front of the line. Yeah, you get to, you know, you're the, you're the captain of the kickball team. You go out there, <laughs> on the, you know, so, so, so I had that life, right? Yeah. Right up to the point where my dad left. My, my dad had some infidelity. Um, he decided that he no longer... Uh, you know, he had some issues, but it was very abrupt. It was like one day he was there and one day he wasn't. And so we did not have, my parents were divorced and we did not have your typical divorce family. It was more of an abandonment. And now let me just explain, and there's probably people that would see this and have different memories. But for me growing up, um, where everything was provided for you, you know, it was just, everything was you know, no worries. You just being a kid and I, and I had a wonderful childhood, very, very um, adventurous. I had some woods behind my house where the Indians lived, and I fought the Indians with my BB gun, and just, you know, just, I was like, you know, like almost like watching one of these television shows or, you know, Dennis the Menace or something. It was just very, very, very adventurous until he left. And when he left, he, there was no child support, there was no alimony, there was no insurance, there was no visitation, there was no weekend custody battles, nothing. He was gone. And it was never explained to me why. And keeping in mind that Uncle Steve was probably 16 or 17, so he was at the end of his childhood going into adulthood, and my sister was, you know, three or four years older than me. So, and I was the youngest, and I, I believe I was like nine years old at that time. Um, and so, not understanding, you know, and and so when a, you don't have a father there, you're, you know, you all of a sudden you you still try to live your normal life, except for when it comes to the father and son baseball game, and the father and son hockey game, and you start it's not making any sense. Dad's not there, and. You know, and then you start seeing him when he does show up at some sporting goods, uh, sporting uh, events that you have. He's with another woman. It's not your mom. And it's never explained to you. So you start, you know, you start kind of hearing stories, bits and pieces about what's going on. And at some point, you know, he's never coming back. 
And so did, did you have that realization? Yeah. Because because nobody I you know, there was Christmases that went by. There was no contact. There was, you know, no birthdays. No, you know. So you're around nine when he left. How, how long did it take you to realize that, that he was never coming back? Well, I think it was, it was like within a year. Yeah. To, I remember going to school in sixth grade and filling out the paperwork. And uh, you fill out the name and address and what ambulance company you want to come and take you away and everything. And I remember under the father section, I wrote none. Mm-hmm. Because we had no, I had no idea where my dad lived. I had no phone numbers. Again, we weren't. Well, we and we didn't have a relationship at that point. So, and do you remember that? Do you remember how you felt when when you realized that? Was it? I mean, because from that point on, and I know you'll describe this. It was like you mentioned. No one's going to come and help me. I mean, you had to really pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. So, right. was was it a period of sadness for you? Or was yeah, it just... I think I think you sh- because the first thing you start seeing is other kids have fathers. And then the the economic things really started to hit. You know, the house was starting to um, fall apart. You didn't have the clothes and the you know the the material things that other kids had. You didn't have a new bike. You didn't have things for Christmas. You didn't have um, interactions in schools. Um, and so there was you know that started happening. And then you know there's the times when you just you're in bed and you and you're thinking it's not that. It's not that, you know, am I being punished? I never thought that. Um, I never thought, I always felt sad because, you know, it was like I, I just didn't have it. And so, um, but I saw my mom really try to uh, do the best that she could with what she had. And, and I think when I, when I was saved as a Christian, I think that's when my shift came to the, to the point where, I decided that I have to take care of my mom. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I think this is really going to sound strange, but I remember watching a movie. I don't know what the name of the movie was. And because we have a military background in our family, my mom was in the Army, my mom was in the Army, my dad was in the Army, and cousins and everything. And, and um, we valued military service. But I remember watching a show and I don't remember the name of it, but it, the, the, the scene was at a, at, a, at a train station and people were coming home from the war and there was this woman standing on the platform looking for the people getting off the train and she was kind of a typical 50, 60. She had the little scarf around her, her head and you know she's carrying her purse with her gloves and she's looking for her son. And of course, her son never got off the train. And I felt so sorry for that lady you know, because where's her son? And I, I just, that just, that image in my mind. And so I always, always felt that, you know, I didn't want that to be my mom. I mean, and, and some, symbolically, I did not want her to ever be a victim. I did not want her to have a need because I seen what had, what had gone through with her struggling, trying to be, provide for three kids with a very limited income with no, no welfare, no nothing. We didn't have nothing. So, and put that in perspective, and maybe we'll talk about it later. So in 1978, when she was working at the Open Pantry on Greenwood Avenue in Jackson and Abe Southern Fried Chicken, which was next door, blew up that night and caused the Open Pantry to be shut down for three weeks. She did not go to work, so therefore we didn't have a paycheck. And it was in April of that year that I went to bed hungry because we didn't have any food. And 
I never held it against my mom, and my mom was doing the best she could, and she finally at some point realized that we didn't have anything to eat, and she walked over to my Uncle Bill's house and borrowed $20. So here we are in the modern age when you have all of this social network, you have all of this social equality and everything and all this financial stuff. I know what it's like to live in the United States of America and, and, and to be poverty. I understand that. And so what do I do? Do I say, woe is me? No. There's a voice in me that says, if you want it, you have to get it. And I think that came from my mom. She said, there's nothing I can do. I can't replace your father. So that's, that's basically the day I stopped becoming a kid. And I think, I think grandma, your grandma always felt bad about that, but I never got to finish out being a kid mm -hmm. that I became an adult at 14, 13, and that's when I got a job. And I have not stopped working since. And I got my first job at Andy's Pizza when I was 13, washing dishes. And so I have not, never been unemployed since then. Mm -hmm. And that would have been, you know, 19... That would have been the fall of 77. So, yep. So, and, and you have been doing it ever since. And so I'm just curious with Grandma, um, who is no longer with us. She was such an amazing woman. But did you, did you ever have, like, that conversation, that that heart-to-heart -heart of, like, here's our situation. It's bleak. Yes, here are the facts, and I'm sorry. Did you actually ever have that oh, conversation yeah. with Oh, yeah, we talked about it a lot, and I, that's why we developed a friendship because we were working together. I was buying groceries. She was paying the light bill. We were both saving money and making 12 monthly payments for the fuel oil, and, you know, we, we never felt sorry for ourselves. We laughed about it. You know, I used to... I used to say that um, when mom talked about being poor, and I remember being little, you know, just saying, "Mom, we're not poor." I said, "I said poor people." I said, "We're not poor." I said, "We just don't have any money." I said, "Poor people don't have any money or love," hmm. and I said, "We, we, you know, we have a family." And so sometimes at Christmas time, all we had was a Christmas tree, but we had one, you know, and so we, you know, we. I, I think of my childhood, and yeah, I would, I would always, you know, it's like with you, I wanted things better for you, but there's also uh, so many things that I learned, and I missed out. I missed out on, on sports and missed out on things that I really wanted to do, but, you know, I was being trained as an adult just a lot earlier than everybody else, so that's why things like COVID-19 don't affect me, and, you know, and storms, and, and I think that's where my emergency preparedness and security, you know, I don't live in fear because I was taught at a young age that, you know, you have to take care of yourself. Yeah. And, you know, if you, and, would have, if you would have given into fear, that would have, uh, that would have been it. I mean, right. I don't know how, what would have ever happened to you and grandma um, at that point. Right. You know, and, you know, and it's funny, you mentioned, you mentioned that exact uh, moment of, you know, being in school and having a dad who's a firefighter. Well, uh, other people might not be able to relate to that, but I can relate to that because you would go on to graduate a high school and you would go on um, and to start your career in many different schemes. Would you mind describing for those people your career and, and work? I know it's continued on, but for the majority of your life, you did you did some very odd things, stuff that I don't understand how you even woke up and did them. I don't understand how how somebody could be called, but other than the fact that obviously it's God's calling on your life, 
You've seen things that most people would never see, and you've lived a life uh, and a career uh, that most people take for granted. So describe what was your, your job uh, right out of, like, once you, once you moved out of the house, now before you met mom, what were you doing? And describe your career up to what you're doing now. Well, I think, I think we have to go back even a little bit farther than that. So when my dad left, you know, even, even prior to that, you know, I, I delivered newspapers and got, you know, pocket money and change to buy my bike and buy different things back then. And my, you know, sports stuff, I want a new baseball glove. So I had a base, you know, I, I did a delivered newspapers, which today, I mean, that's a, that's a whole story in itself. I mean, that's right. a whole marketing franchise to be a paper boy, the way they, we had to do it back then, as opposed to do it now. I shoveled snow. Um, I did odd jobs with uh, my uncle painting on Saturdays. And so, um, what I learned was, if you want to call it a woundedness, is that, is that nobody's going to give you anything, so you have to go earn it. And until this day, perhaps I am a workaholic, because that's what I learned as a child, that if you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't work, you don't have a car. If you don't, you know, so everything you have in life, you have to earn it. Now, I know that we live in a generation today where there's this entitlement and there's this expectation, and I think that's all convoluted because there's this idea that there's free stuff out there, and we all know that there's nothing is free. Somebody else is paying for it. Right. And so, so yeah, so when I, uh, I graduated from high school and um, I wanted to get money, I didn't decide to go to college until like April or May of my senior year. Because I, my high school was so different, too, with my, my building trees. So I didn't have a counselor. I didn't have any counseling or guidance whatsoever from, from my high school. Um, I had a couple of mentor teachers. Um, but in, in 1981, the, the construction market dropped and just fell right out of the, the, the economy dropped, so there were no construction jobs. So I figured I'd have to go to college. And I went in the Army, and that didn't work out because they were going to move me from my military police reserve to regular army. So anyway, I end up coming back home and then I worked odd jobs in construction. And I got to finally, uh, just by talking to one of my friends about, I understood what the Pell Grant was and that there was some money, I think $600 so I could go get books and go to JCC. I wanted, I got into law enforcement. I wanted to make a change because I was looked down upon as a person who was from a lower social economic. I wouldn't say it's discrimination, but I do know that there was preferences that were that were given to other people based on that. I mean, there were judgments made. Um, so then, you know, I got into law enforcement and I took it very seriously, and 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 I, and God was all behind it. It was all a God thing. Uh, I got hired into the Jackson Police Department. I was the first white male hired in the Jackson Police Department in eight years uh, as a cadet. And I was the I was the junior cadet. There were two other cadets in front of me. Um, when another when another officer left, and I was promoted because the other two officers in front of me had flunked their classes. The other two cadets. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. So when um, I actually got hired on our honeymoon, mm -hmm. we mom and I came back. That's from right, because you actually got promoted as a police officer. Yep, right? I so got that promoted been as a police officer. 1985, yep. right? Yep. So, so you so you come yep. back from your honeymoon, you get a promotion. Yep. Yep, that, must that was the been, best. It was the best wedding present I ever got. You know, so yeah. So so, so you're making you're making you made the big leagues. You're, did you always want to be a police officer? 
yeah, I wanted to be a yeah, I wanted to be a police. I mean, I wanted to be a I wanted to be a fireman. I think deep down inside, because my uncle was a fireman, my dad was a fireman, mm-hmm. and um, so you know, so, and I tried so, out for that. And uh, there were three hundred people that tested, and I and they were taking the top twenty five, and I opened up the mail one day, and my number was twenty six. Yeah. Uh, and so, and two, then like two months later, I got hired in the police department, yeah. and I worked at the police department. I was really good. I enjoyed it. I was an investigator. Um, I was there about four years. And then um, just another God thing happened when um, they needed firemen and there was a lateral transfer that you could do. I just happened to stop into a fire station one day to get a cup of coffee. And some people that I'd known that worked there said, hey, did you hear about this? And so, I, I, again, I was very inquisitive. There was no computer, no phone. I had to go use some human capital, some social capital. And you know, long story short, I made a lateral transfer to the fire department. Now, now before we go any further, so how far, did, how how long were you a police officer for? You said four years. I was four four years as a city police officer. And how how far? Like, what was your what was your um, status or title when you left? I was an officer. You're off patrol officer, officer. Patrol yep. officer. Yep. And then, so you talking about a lateral transfer? God moved in your way. You so what does a lateral transfer mean? Man, I meant I kept my city time, my vacation accrual, and my pay. And it just everything transferred over, so I didn't lose employment. And so, my, for retirement purposes, I had four years of seniority. So I transferred over to the fire department as a firefighter, and that would have been 1989. 89. Okay. Yep. And and you just started this new adventure about um, being a firefighter. Yeah. Did so, you have any idea what you were doing? Not really. <laughs> so I went to you know, so I went to firefighter school. You had to go to firefighter one and firefighter two and hazmat and everything. So I did all that. And what's really interesting is, is that, um, you know, in, in my life, I was working like, um, I was working 3 to 11 uh, p.m. at the police department. Mom was working 8 to 5. So I had Tuesdays and Wednesdays off and spent those days in court. She had Saturdays and Sundays off. So it was very stressful because mm-hmm. we never saw each other. So then I got this job at the fire department, and we, we worked the California 3 platoon system. Yeah, so, so you're going to have to explain it to people. Okay, so it's basically you work a day, 24 hours, then you're off a day, 24 hours, then you work a day, 24 hours, then you're off a day, and then you work a day, and then you're off for four days. And so when you look at the calendar, it's so much easier to explain. If you look at the calendar, you work three of every nine days with a day off in between. So after about a month, I was going stir-crazy. Right. So, so how know. so how long did because that's a that's a big for people who are like eight to five or nine to five. Right. I mean, the idea that the fire department you're not fighting fires twenty four seven. Right. I mean, there's obviously there's you're on call for 24 seven or twenty four hours at a time, seven days a week. But your shift, like you said, three days out of the nine days. Some of those days, I mean, I asked you this, you didn't necessarily take a call sometimes. Right. And, but we you know so we had to maintain all the equipment. Yeah. And we had to train. And we did fire inspections, and, and there was just a lot of busy work because the fire department, you know, when you go to a fire, you have to take everything with you. You're, exactly. You know, yeah. Fuel, water, electricity, you know, hydraulics. I mean, so all that equipment has to be trained, maintained, and, you know, it's just it's a constant upkeep so that when that bell rings, yeah, you, that you, stuff works. Exactly. So, but, that like, the schedule is that, you literally you get a full day off after working, and right. some of those days were strenuous, obviously. Right. But 
the uh, I mean, of course, all all of the days of the fire department are some, right. somewhat strenuous. But uh, for those listening who might be upset that I just said that, um, because I actually later on in life, uh, I actually spent a full day with you guys down there. It was a lot of fun. But for the people working nine to five and get up and do nine to five and nine to five. The fire department, that must have been, I mean, that, that's a huge, were you prepared for that adjustment personally? Um, is that what led I to this? I was really looking forward to the schedule because you got a lot of time off. Now, now, for those people out there to realize, I was away from my family 56 hours a week. Right. Because that was our normal work week was 56 hours. And so for all those nine to fivers out there who had some weekends off, um, I would just ask how many birthdays and holidays um, you know, I worked holidays of police and fire. Closest I ever came to killing a man with my in my police department was on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. And so I worked Christmases away from my family, holidays, uh, other holidays, birthdays. There's a lot that you sacrifice mm-hmm. in that type of job. Yeah. So there in the fire service, there are no we there's no there's no weekends. Right. You just you just this perpetual calendar keeps going. Exactly. You just keep going and keeps going. So, so. so how long did you make it before you you were going stir crazy, like you mentioned. About a month. Because, <laughs> because, you know, I mean, you work, and then all of a sudden you got four days off, and it's like you clean the garage, you clean the basement, and went, now what do you do? Yeah. Okay. So that's when I got my part-time job, and so I had all the certification as a police officer. So then I got a job part-time as a police officer in Waterloo Township and ended up working out there for the next 18 years. So I did police and fire separately. Yeah. You know, not as a public safety, but as separate. Yeah, so that's the thing, is that why in the world would you go back? Because, I mean, because people nowadays, law enforcement, I'm not even going to get into the political thing, is it's it's much more nuanced now, and there's different services that, you know, each particular city or municipality, rather, has with their philosophy with law enforcement and, and emergency response and fire response. But you, like you just mentioned... It was firefighting only, police work only. They, those were two separate things. But you were able to get out of a you know pretty dangerous line of work, going into another dangerous line of work. But you, after a month, were like, "Why not have both?" <laughs> you know. Right. So why well, did you go back? Well, because that's that's the skill set I had. It's you know it's you have to go with what you know, and I was good at it. Mm-hmm. And it was you know it was it was fun. It was intriguing. Um, and in the issue today, you know, the, the work schedules for law enforcement is totally different now than it was back when when I was. So I when I was working patrol, I, I worked like the, the worst part of the city from 3 p.m. to midnight or 3 p.m. to 11 or sometimes I worked, you know, nights and I had Tuesdays and Wednesdays off. And there was no, the next seven years did not look, I was not going to get anything off, I mean, anything better than that. Gotcha. So that meant there was no weekends, there was no, you know, no social stuff, no, no baseball, no softball, no bowling, no, all that stuff was all, you know, your social life is different then. Now you're seeing that that's changed because people, they want to live a life, right? Right. And so you're seeing officers working 10 hour shifts, 12 hour shifts, and they get more day, you know, more time off. And so having, working the, the fire department, um, was 56 hours and then being able to work eight hour shifts. It was, you know, different, it's different job. So that's what you did. So So on your days off, you worked part time at, at, at Waterloo Township as a police officer. Police officer. And so what, so your schedule then, like, what did that do to your days off then? I still had a lot of days off because I only worked six days part time. 
so that, that's I'm still a, able to work two jobs and have more time off than the nine to fivers. Yeah, and so, and you say six, so six days a month as at Waterloo Township, yes. and mm-hmm. nine days a month working as a firefighter. Right. So, so that you know, that's obviously it's still coming up. You know, fifteen days a month. <laughs> that's not bad. Right. Uh, but that wasn't the only part time job that you decided to get into. Yeah. So yeah. then. Um, so how long did you do that before you picked up the, the Emmy's office? Well, that would have been, uh, I went to the medical examiner's office in 96. Yeah. So, so, I'm, so you've already had a kid. Now you have a yeah. dog at this point. You've, yeah. you've been married to mom. Mm-hmm. So life isn't busy enough for you. You decided, why'd you pick up a third part? That's, like there's a, third there's a real simple, there's a real simple answer to that. And there's a real simple reason for that. I was asked if I wanted to do it. And when you grow up poor... When somebody offers you a job, not only is it flattering, okay, because of my skill set, police, fire, investigations, some medical background, you know, there's, of all the people that you could pick, why did they pick me? That was the first job that I never applied for. Yeah. So they came and offered to me and I said yes instantly. And it turned out I had some wonderful training and, and got, you know, some interesting cases and really helps you put life into perspective when you're dealing with that that type of uh, nature of work because you get to see what's behind the scenes. You get to see um, what's what reality is, not nothing that's hyped up by the media or doctored by some television documentary. You get to see the real deal, even sometimes before the investigators get there. So untouched. Yeah. So, and describe, so you have the fire to fighting, you have the part-time, at, at the police, police or Waterloo Township as a police officer, and now you pick up part time at, at the medical examiner's office uh, right. as a death investigator. So describe that in de- detail. What was your job at the medical examiner's office? So as the medical examiner, I was what was called a the official title was a medical legal death investigator. So the way the system works in the state of Michigan is we have a medical examiner system for each county. And then the, it's the responsibility of the medical examiner to determine the cause and manner of every death. And there are several ways they do that. Um, they can get, um, uh, there's only like four or five ways you can die. So there's natural death, there's suicide, which is taking your own life, homicide, which means somebody else takes another life. So there's natural, suicide, homicide. There is accidental and then there's other. There's five. There's only five ways you can die. Mm-hmm. And so you have to determine the, the cause and the manner. So you could die of blunt trauma from a car accident, or you could die of blunt trauma from uh, an inflicted wound from somebody else, which would become up to be a homicide. Mm-hmm. So, so you had to determine that. And so what we would do is go to the scene when we have a death scene, and we collect all the information. Uh, we do history, um, you know, to lead up to help determine what that cause and manner was. And that might be just their medical history. He said, you know, Charlie died. He's 96. He's had 700 heart attacks. Pretty good chance he had another heart attack. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, especially when you look at he doesn't have any wounds or something like that. So the guy's got nine bullet holes in him. We pretty much know he didn't commit suicide <laughs> unless he was a poor shot. So it was just one of those. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it was just one of those things where, for the record, that's the sense of humor you have to have if so, you work all those so, jobs. So, so that was so yeah, that, that was what you did. Uh, now, what um, that you know, I obviously I remember the firefighting because that that was the most prominent thing. But I still remember that chirp of your pager like the back of my hand. 
because when it was your day off, we're playing, and I hear that pager go off, I knew it was four, and you'd have me run up inside your pants you know, pocket, inside your closet, and I'd get it, and I'd read the number. I think that was one of the first things I ever did is that you taught me how to read the number, mm-hmm. you know, on the pager so you could call Jill Glare, you know, oh. and you could you could get the information necessary, and then it would be decided whether or not you needed to go once you contacted the people. And some right. days that would that would require you leaving. Some days that that's something you could handle over the phone. And uh, for me, I was always praying that you didn't have to go. And I, right. I remember sometimes that you had to leave some sporting events for it, or you know, a couple times I went with you. Yep. And it was kind of weird uh, to to watch, but you you never you never shied away from that reality with me. You never, you know, obviously not as a young kid, but you know, you would, you would go to, uh, you do go to our, the Kodak store here in town when it was, when that was still a thing. And you talk to Kyle and he would have those uh, photos developed. And as a kid, you know, I growing up, I'm always curious and that you always kept them away for a time. And then as I got older, you started showing me that reality mm-hmm. of here's what happens when you trip and fall down the stairs or when someone's mad and they decide to shoot somebody in the head, um, what does it actually look like? And you were constantly telling me and trying to uh, teach me the difference between reality and fantasy, which is like the movies, because mm-hmm. you know how much I love movies and TV shows. Right. And that is something that most kids never got as far as an education. So I feel blessed because I've seen that reality very little, obviously, but... I, if you're talking about life skills, you, you talked about it earlier, that's something I wish everybody, every kid growing up to a certain point, because they need therapy if they got it too young, that mm-hmm. they need to be shown the consequences of these actions when you text and drive or you run a red light. What happens to a human body when it gets hit by X amount of weight going 55 miles an hour because you wanted to switch the song on your phone mm-hmm. and you weren't paying attention? So that that's something that, you know, for whatever whatever drove you if it was the holy spirit or it was just you know common sense i guess you you taught me that from a young age so what what are what are the things you know with your x amount of years your 25 plus years of experience as a firefighter 18 and 19 years as a police officer death investigator what what are like the common misconceptions about about like the these these things about about sickness death um disease um trauma that people think they know because they like watching Law and Order versus what actually happens. Like, what are the biggest misconceptions or things that you have to educate people about? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head because I think most people get their education from television, um, and you see that what happening in our society today with law enforcement. You know, they want or saw their crimes solved within an hour with a couple commercials in between, and you know, so their perception of uh, even when they see things on the news of what reality is. Um, and so real life, I think one of the best things that happened for us is, is some of this live TV um, and videos. You ever watch a video, like a YouTube video where something happens and it's because it's unscripted, and I could be way out in left field by saying this, but it just looks so fake. Un- it looks so unprofessional. Yeah, it, it looks it, like the, you know the person getting, you know, the person that you're looking at, they, they look like a, almost like a uncoordinated um right you know unprofessional because yeah. because you know Hollywood like Jack Reacher everything's coordinated yeah. right 
and it's very it, clean and it's everybody clean and it's, everybody and knows it, how to do everything and it's all fake right, right. well in reality you don't get to train and you don't know what's happening and so you're just kind of reacting and so that's why it's just like it's just like chaos but that's the real world yeah it's it's know? a messy thing yeah right look at look at look at uh, a YouTube video of a tornado that goes through Oklahoma and then compare that to the movie Twister yeah okay so all that CGI and all that stuff it just it's just not real so um, I think I think people need to understand that reality is reality, and and no matter what kind of spin that we want to try to put on it, it's still reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think we try to protect people from reality. I mean, think of other countries that are dealing with you know wars and terrorism and stuff like that. Their children are used to seeing people blowing up in the streets and people getting shot and stuff like that. I mean, that's just the way some cultures... Unfortunately, are, yeah, some yeah. people grow up with that And so war. think about the, you know, the trauma that they had to go through. But then again, if you go back in history and look at the Civil War and, and look at some of the, um, the disease processes that happened, um, you know, in the pioneer days... How people would get, you know, disease and stuff. It was a, it was a much harder life. Yeah, and so there, you, you know, couldn't shy away from. You didn't have the right. luxury yeah. of not experiencing yeah. it. Today, if you know, some people will see a the birth of a kitten and they'll go, "Oh, so gross." And you have other people say, "Well, I was born on a farm and raised it, on a farm, it, and exactly. I've seen all that yeah. stuff." Really, that's what we got to compare to, you know? Yeah. So, and, um, so you you deal with the, these things, and it's not like, yeah, I, I think, I, I think for people. Who my generation, we, we have the luxury of not having to experience these things, um, maybe combined with what we talked about earlier, intellectual curiosity or the lack thereof. When you see something, you don't know how to respond to it. And I think that's a value you tried to instill within me. I might not have all of the skills that you have. I Well, I know I certainly don't. Uh, however, that's something that you've tried to train me is always prepare me for, hey, what are you prepared to do if this happens? And it started very young. Like even back when we listened to C.W. McCall on your white or 1996 Ford Rangers cassette tapes, and you would ask me, Michael, what road are we on? And I would say, uh, I don't know. And you started teaching me about roads, directions. You started teaching me about mile markers on highways. Even when I was just a little, a little kid, just four or five years old, you just asked me these simple questions just to keep me interested. So I wasn't, I wasn't just, you know, falling asleep all the time or, you know, getting lost. You were always trying to teach me something in a moment. And one of those things hit a nail on its head when I was, you know, getting ready to start driver's training. And you taught me some direct, just basic, basic directional skills, but it was always to a point of one day you're going to drive yourself to school and I'm not going to be there. What happens when you are in trouble? And I call you, and you said this, I remember this. You said, all right, Michael, you call me. You call your dad, and you say, Dad, I need help. What's my next question, Michael? You asked me that. And I said, uh, you'd probably ask me where I was. And you'd say, now, if you can't tell me where, I, where you are, how am I supposed to help you? How is 911 supposed to help you? And it, I'll never forget that because it's like, how, do, how would I describe? I need help, but I'm somewhere. But I don't know what direction I'm going. I don't know what road I'm on. I don't know what mile marker. I don't know what exit maybe on the highway I'm coming up to. I don't know how to describe my problem. So it, that, from a young age, it was just situational awareness, which we'll get to later. But you try to teach me that even if I don't know, have the answer, 
I can maybe can call you because one thing you did well is that as a kid, you may not have had that dependability, but I always did. I knew that if I ever had an issue, you would always be there. And God help the person who stood in your way. <laughs> well, yeah. but that's what that's the, that's what a father's supposed to do, yeah. right? Yeah, that's my job. So I really appreciate the compliment. But like I've always said, you don't, you don't get credit for doing what you're supposed exactly. to do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, you don't get extra bonus points for doing what you're supposed yeah. to do. So, so you um, so you continue with your your career and you retire from the fire department, and it leads you into a totally different line of work, different schedule. Uh, I'm in college now. Describe your 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 transition out of being a medical examiner, firefighter, police officer, back into maybe the civilian world to a point, and working at Lynn Products. Well, so um, prior to me retiring, another significant event that we should probably discuss was going to Hurricane Katrina. Oh yeah, right. and um, so that's what that really got me into the emergency preparedness. Um, I really, up to that point, didn't know what emergency preparedness was from a concept standpoint. Um, you know, it was more about response. And so that whole t time down there, I was really intrigued by emergency preparedness, emergency management. And so I came back and really self-educated myself by, again, sacrificing my time and effort and taking advantage of the education that was provided at Michigan State Police Department of Emergency Management and Homeland Security. And uh, I got my professional emergency management certification, went through some 45 or 50 classes through FEMA, a three-year program at, at MSP, um, and then decided that, you know, businesses were not prepared. And it's, it's almost like, it's almost prophetic. When you look at what we just dealt with with COVID-19, you know, 15 years ago, that's what we were talking about. What are you prepared to do, not only just for a flood or a fire or a hurricane? And we found out in Hurricane Katrina that people were not able to uh, take care of themselves because we, we had this idea that the government was going to come in and provide all of our needs, and we realized the government couldn't do that. So there was a standard, first standard idea that you as an individual need to be able to take care of yourself for the golden 72 hours. Mm -hmm. Because they can't assemble everybody together and that know, quickly, you know, yeah. yeah. And because you know, we just don't have that many people and that many resources standing around. So there again, it just kind of fed into my whole life uh, a model of being prepared, being self-dependent. Um, so, so with that in mind, so when I retired, um, I got a job doing safety um, at Lynn Products, and and it was occupational safety. And occupational safety, a lot of it is proactive. We want to prevent an injury from happening. So it was guarding. It was making sure people had the right protective gear. They were following the right procedures. Okay, It wasn't responding to injuries. It was all about prevention, and it was all about proactive. Yeah, because once you try to react, it's too late, right? Right, yeah. I'd much rather prevent you getting sawed in half on this big machine than to put the two pieces back together and, and explain to somebody why that happened. Right. You know, so cause and effect. So uh, injury prevention was really something that, you know, you worked on. And then that led to, like, site security. But something significantly happened in our country at that time, um, and that was, you know, the whole terrorism and counterterrorism that started, um, and domestic terrorism, and we had ISIS and Al-Qaeda. 
Um, and so that would have been like around 2010, 2011. And so there's where I made the big switch into more of security and started securing our workplaces because we had workplace violence was now becoming an issue. Um, and our churches were being targeted. Um, you had racial issues going on. You had ideology. You had all kinds of things. And so the violence was really, really ramping up. Um, and a lot of it just came from the whole terrorist idea as opposed to conventional warfare. Mm-hmm. You know, bio, there was bioterrorism, there was nuclear terrorism, there was, you know, um, all kinds of different, you know, neo-terrorist types ideas that people were putting together. And, and you, in, in conjunction with learning these things, making a career move, um, having experiences again that I think God certainly had his hand in, you were learning things that a lot of people didn't have, and you combine that with the, your faith and what you were doing already by just going to church. You, along the way, had this idea to use the skills, the talents, the gifts that you believe God gave you, and apply them potentially to the church. So what describe then, as you, as you have gone on with your career, you've moved on to new schemes, you, at the same time, were, were looking at the church and how do we make the church safer? So instead of, which a lot of people would do, once you see something bad has happened, and I'm talking anywhere in life, not just the church, you call somebody, right? Because um, there are professionals for a reason. You know, not everyone's going to be trained how to respond to a crisis. But once something bad has happened, you then call somebody. But the question is, is are, are there anything, is, I mean, excuse me, is there anything that we can do to prevent some of these bad things that can happen? You can't prevent medical emergencies if somebody, you know, has trouble breathing. You can't help out somebody who's diabetic who didn't take their insulin. You can't, you know, if somebody's having a manic episode, you can prepare for those and how to right. respond, but you can't, you're not, you can't predict them. However, um, threats of violence, um, body language, um, having some background, uh, having people on social media track certain things mm-hmm. helps in prevention. And so if you can do something to prevent a potential conflict, wouldn't you want to do that? That'd be like a pitch to a business, right? Like if you had control and say, could you, would you want to help prevent this from happening? I think everybody would say yes, but yet no one ever wanted to invest in it. So how did you take this growing need Combine and combine it with your education and your passions, and and basically make that a ministry. How how did that happen? Well, I think I think it's it was just a calling that I've always had a servant's heart, and I've always wanted to to help people, and I could I could I think I had this prophetic way of saying this is a need that's coming, and it was always like two or three years before people were willing to accept it, um, and I think it was that concept, the fact that if we could prevent it. Would we? Yeah. Um, because we, li- our country, we we learn, we learn the hard way. Um, the United States of America has a great response system. We have great lights and siren. If we have an incident, you look on the television set, and all you see is police cars and fire trucks for as far as the eye can see, and that's great. But let me ask you this question: Is that that when we have an incident? you know, in, in our businesses, our church or something, and we say, um, you know, if, if we could have prevented that, would, you know, what would we do it? Exactly. And yeah. it's like, okay, um, if we know that, could we, let's prevent it from happening. And people would say, well, 
um, you know, would we or would we change the way we do things? I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is if you know if we're if we're doing things A B A B A B and something happens, are we going to change to C D C D? Mm-hmm. And they would probably say yes. Well, then why do we have to wait for that event to happen? Exactly. That's the and thing. so yeah. so you know it's kind of like there's a you know an old, an old saying from uh, you know the art of war. You know the body can't go where the mind hasn't been. And so my mind has gone to a lot of places. And so when I think if my mind can go there, other people's minds can go there. Do you remember what we did when we first got, this is going to be strange for our listeners. Do you remember when we first got our computer, when we lived on Herbert Street, our very first computer? Oh, yeah. And we had the 19... I I almost... I almost would admit this, uh, something that's going on the internet, Dad. Yes, go ahead. So... We had a 1998 um, flight simulator from Microsoft. You remember yeah. that? Yeah. 1998. And what were we doing in the evenings for fun? No, no. Listen, this is not on purpose. For the record, for anyone who ends up listening to this, we were not doing this because we were terrorists. We were experimenting with the games program and were curious what would happen if... We were flying planes into buildings because when we flew, when we flew the plane into the building, we were looking at the graphics and the, and the, it was funny because, and this is true. There's nothing funny about it. No, the plane would fall, would crash. And then when it hit the ground, it would, it would re, re, re boot itself and take off. Yeah. And it's like, and we had no, of course, this is different thinking. Nobody thought, nobody would ever deliberately fly a plane into a building. And right. we, and that's not why we're doing it. But that was what was so, again, maybe prophetic that if we can think about it, yeah. then somebody else must have been thinking Exactly. About it. And so, yes, for the record, we were just testing the physics engine of this <laughs> Windows XP flight simulator 1998 for right. the record. Yes. Now, and uh, it, it worked. Um, so, um, yes. But so you, you start this ministry at uh, our former church and while we're in different locations now, but you start a ministry of of safety and security, right? Uh, and for Jackson S Church, and you and, and you've done that now, um, and you, for what fifteen years? Mm-hmm. And and I think what's significant for the listeners is that the program that we use was unique. Nobody in the United States was using what we were doing, because we and you know I invented it. Um, I brought it because it came from an Israeli base of uh, situational awareness. Um, from Michael Rosen, who was the, the education and training I got. It's a concept of uh, basically looking at suspicious behavior. We know that when bad people are going to do bad things, that their body language changes, that, that we can prevent things from happening because you just don't wake up in the morning and decide whether you're going to have a bowl of Cheerios or grab your a rifle and go shoot people. Right. Okay. So we know that. And so that's the preventative part. So there are a lot of things, a lot of skill sets that you can teach professionals, law enforcement, security, intelligence gathering. You can also teach this to the average person, not at the same level, but you can do it to where it's very, very effective. And at our church, it was highly effective. And it was, it was so intriguing because people were wanting to learn how to do that. Every church that we've ever went to and trained, they nobody's ever turned that training away. They all wanted it. And so instead of waiting for something to happen in your church, we realized that we could prevent things from happening. Yeah. So that so that was the key thing. And it it went right along with what the mission of our church is. The whole concept of being friendly 
and paying attention to people that come to your church so that you could fit, you know, fit them into whatever they're looking for. And the whole, the whole purpose was asking that proverbial question, why are you here? Mm-hmm. What's your purpose here? What is your purpose here at church? And so once we found out what your purpose was, then we could get you connected. And one of those purposes may be if you're trying to do harm mm-hmm. or looking to do harm or practicing for the opportunity to do harm, it's all going to come out in your behavior. Yeah. So. And, and and that's something that we found that when you ask, I mean, it, a lot of pastors will, will listen to this. So I have a couple more questions about this before we go. Uh, but a lot of a lot of people in ministry will listen to this podcast. And my question for them is, why do your people come to church? And how we answer that is is a standard kind of American church here in the West. People come to at least come came to our former church to you know, socialize, you know, that means drink coffee, like take care, take advantage of the free coffee, uh, get maybe something from the coffee bar mm-hmm. um, to potentially just see their friends and hang out with their friends. Uh, people came to uh, listen to the nice music. Uh, people came for the free Wi-Fi. And then a few people came to actually worship, you know, and volunteer. <laughs> and volunteer. And, you know, yeah. and, and, and there's, there's a lot of reasons why people would come to a church. And of course, our church was, you know, anywhere between 12 to, to 1,600 people on a given Sunday for the, most of the years we were there. And, and I guess when I say we here for the people listening, I served on the safety team with you. And, and I, this idea of being pre- like preventing things from happening, you had mentioned, it doesn't mean that you're a bodyguard with glasses standing in a corner with your arms crossed and you're looking all stern and serious. No, we were actively engaged with people, but for for the the church, which have been places of of abuse, uh, not not even talking about people who are on the outside. It's been a place of abuse by people from the inside, right? You know, uh, taking advantage of their position to influence those, uh, and it's been they have been targeted attacks. So for those people listening, those pastors, those people in ministry. What are some things that people can do right this very moment on this Sunday uh, coming up or their next service that they can do to help prevent maybe some things that could potentially happen? We're not talking about an active shooter. We're not talking about the stuff out of Hollywood. We're not talking about the anomalies that happen. Mm -hmm. We're talking about just the just the general like things that maybe just a domestic dispute, like this just guy, he's tired of having the kids go with mom. So he's there to grab the kids on Sunday. Churches are really an easy venue to protect Mm -hmm. because there are concentrated reasons why you come to that church. I think it's a very comprehensive answer because just because it's church doesn't mean that it's safe. Just because it's church doesn't mean that we can let our guard down. Just because it's church um, doesn't mean that you don't have to worry about things. Not, not that, I mean, it's not like worry is a sin. I mean, 35, 40 years ago, people would say that, you know, bad things happen, but they never happen in church sure. because it goes back to the fact that at the end of the day, it's a good versus evil, okay? And if your church is thriving, your church is doing great ministry, your church is is meeting people and meeting needs, that is where Satan is going to put his his efforts. He's he doesn't want good things to happen in your church. No. Okay. You're right. And so he's going to do the littlest, simplest things. That could be discourse on the church board. That could be rumors. That could be you know people sneaking in. So you, you have to be you have to be vigilant, and you have to understand vigilant. That, yes. Yeah, yeah. That you have to pay attention to what's going on, 
And don't say that that'll never happen here or that can't happen here. You have to constantly look out for things. And, you know, a good, a good example is you could, you could get a good church and be very naive about why a person is at your church. Um, why would a person bring puppies to your church? Why would a person bring a puppy to show the children at a church? Nobody's going to get upset with a person who's bringing a puppy to church. Everybody loves puppies. But the question is, why do you bring a puppy to church? I know that a lot of pedophiles and a lot of sexual abusers have used puppies to lure children away because it works. Mm -hmm. And it's real subtle. And so um, weird things like that, if nobody's paying attention and nobody's questioning uh, for parents, parents have an obligation to take care of their children. If there's something that doesn't feel right or doesn't seem right, then you always put your children's um, needs and your children's um, safety and security first and stop worrying about hurting somebody's feelings. Because that's what, that's what happens with our society. We are so afraid of offending people that we will put our children second or third down the line. And so I've seen that so many times. And so if something is inappropriate, that parent needs to tell somebody, you know, I appreciate that if, you know, not, not touching my child that way or not taking my child over and that, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with you doing that. That's inappropriate. And so there's nothing wrong with accumulate uh, doing that because our children want our parents to, to, you know, look out for us and defend us. And because we, the, the children can't do it on their yeah, own. It's the, they're the most right. vulnerable. Yeah. And, and so like, as far as just things that people can do today, is it just asking or maybe stop saying the phrase that'll never happen here? Right. Yeah. Because it's been proven over and over again, the sinfulness of man, it, it knows no bounds. Right. And no one's, no one's immune from the effects and the depravity of man. Right. Right. And so having just the mentality of, no, we don't need to implement this, or no, we don't need to talk about it because it'll never happen here. That is something Satan will absolutely use, that, that right. type of mentality. And I, I think the question I would have to the church and to the pastors is that um, how many, because I think years ago it was more of an issue than it probably is today, how many people in your church are uncomfortable talking to strangers that come to church? When I say a first-timer stranger, mm -hmm. not a strange stranger. Yeah. So when a new person comes to your church, how are they approached? How are they, how are they greeted? You just shake their hand, say, hello, how are you? Welcome. And then you turn away and, 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 you know, there's a new person that comes to our church and nobody's ever talked to them. Yeah. We don't know anything about them. I mean, could a person actually come to your church and, um, you know, be a part of the service and be greeted and, and, and be smiled at and everybody, you know, be friendly and warm and then that person leave the church. And then if I was to go back in and say, what was that person's name? Where do they live? Where are they from? Did anybody even take the time to, to be friendly and get to know them? Because that's, you know, if you're looking to do harm, you, you just, you don't want people coming up and talking exactly. to you. You, don't, yeah. you, do, you want to just kind of blend into the corner yep, in the back the row. And, you know, yep. and so, um, yeah, that's, so I, I think because years ago there were churches where, oh, there's a new person here. You know, uh-oh. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a source of gossip and yeah, that person is never, never greeted at all. Yeah, you know, yep. it's weird when people come to church. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand yeah, that because yeah, we, we've seen that. Yep. And, so, but, but that, that's potentially, uh, what you're getting at is that when you, 
or just it has nothing to do with ill motive. You're right. just wanting to, you know, be be the friend, be the neighbor, loving thy neighbor. Right. And in the process of talking to somebody, if you're paying attention, if you mm-hmm. are trained, or if you're just looking at how someone's behaving, you might be able to t- detect if they are there for an ill motive. They right, right. And and the thing is, is that if you have your church and you have uh, a new visitor. You're basically going to ask, you could have 50 visitors a year and you would go through the same process with that visitor. So, for example, if you were coming to my church mm-hmm. and I didn't know you, okay, and, and with the back of my mind is I want to know what your purpose here is, not only from a security standpoint, but from an interaction, okay? Mm-hmm. So some of the questions I have in my mind would be, why are you here? Are you, uh, I'm just, I, I'm in town and I'm just looking for a church to go to. Okay, that's cool. What kind of church do you, have you been to church before? You know, what kind of music do you usually listen to? Um, what do you really, you know, what do you look for in the church or what, what, you know, what's your expectation? Um, are you maybe like, uh, you want to get into a Bible study or are you more of a contemporary music? So you can start asking questions and they say, well, I got, I got 35 kids and I just didn't know what kind of, you know, children's ministry you have. Okay, that's good. So you're starting to learn about this person and learn about what they're looking for, what their purpose is, and then you can connect with them. Mm-hmm. Maybe that person walks in the door and says, this is the first time I've ever been in church before. Mm-hmm. Oh, good, thanks. Have a nice day. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, don't sit in my chair. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, you know, ah, da, 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 da. That, that's my chair. So, yeah. you know, and then there's no engagement. Yeah. So that person goes away. Yeah, that's not that's not disciple right. making because you know your ministry uh, and it was incredibly unique. Is it's not it's it it was in combination to what Jax Naz here did with her first touch ministry. It was in combination mm-hmm. where you the motive was we just want to get to know people. I know it's it's a shocker, but while we're doing so, you can prepare people to. You know, do a little bit of recon on people, not mm-hmm. not so that you can gossip or be nosy, but because you can you can help protect potentially again against the threat right. or against those, especially again. I'll mention the children. The amount of stories that are continuing to come out with child right. trafficking in this mm-hmm. last two years is astonishing, and we and we know with again the the Southern Baptist scandal that occurred. What was mm-hmm. that in twenty seventeen? Uh, yeah, I think it's earlier than earlier that. than that. That it, it's they. Every, it, they all they all look like us. It's just normal people, and it's also sometimes people in the church. So, what what type of policies, what type of uh, programs would or would you want to institute? Not let, let's forget the people outside coming in. What about for the staff policies for for children and uh, well, and there's rooms there's and stuff? those are pretty well standardized. I mean, there's ideas of like um, um, there's so much training. I mean of who, who can be with children, I mean, your background checks, um, you've got to have more than one adult. There's a lot of that stuff that's standard, and that's the easy part. The hard part is keeping it current. You just don't do it once and then go 10 years. Right. All right, so, yeah. and then it's, you know, it's a constant revolving type thing. Um, and then not skipping your corners, not saying, well, that's Joe's cousin, and we know Joe really good, so therefore exactly. yeah. he gets in by, you know, by osmosis or something mm-hmm. like that, but. But it's interesting, just to back up real quick, when you think about what we're talking about, like visitors, and I'm sure somebody's written a book or done something in, uh, on this line, but it seems like, what, what would it be like if, you know, Jesus visited your church? 
you know, or, or what, what would you, what would you say if Jesus came to your church in the, you know, in the guise of a homeless person or, um, you know, just a visitor? Because I think there's been some videos that have been done where a pastor dressed up as a homeless person of his own church, you know, disguised and came in and seen how he was treated and some, some other actors. Remember we talked about our red teams that we did? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that same idea. The so, people don't know what red team is. Yeah. What, what, so, what is a so red, red team? So a red team is where you have a professional actor, kind of like a secret shopper or a secret Santa, where they go in and either try to um, get into a space or, or get, get someplace they're not supposed to go, and they're basically testing your protocols, testing your security, by um, violating, um, you know, their the physical space. Maybe you have a somebody's in um, trying to pick up a child that shouldn't be picking up a child. Maybe you have this person pretending to be um, a part of the staff and they're really not. So they're they're role playing. It's just and with, without the knowledge of the safety team. So this is a complete stranger to the safety team, but it's coordinated by either the director. And so they're just doing a kind of like a dry run. Um, it's very popular. It's, it's an actual profession that they use in Israel. And that's how they train. It's real, you know, real live, actual people trying to do things. And, and so what, what's happened at our church was, first of all, were they noticed? And was their behavior noticed? And what did we do about that behavior? So we did interact with these people. We started asking them some questions, very friendly and we found out that, okay, something doesn't seem right. Questions don't answer. The answers don't seem to uh, make sense or they're, they're giving us two different answers. And then finally, you know, because some of the kids we use were from the college, they were getting so nervous that they just kind of like threw up their hands and said, okay, I'm on a red team. I give up type thing. Mm-hmm. Ollie, ollie, oxen free type thing. Right. So, so. so there's there's a lot of things that people can do. I, I It's just if, if you're a small town church or – Everyone knows everyone that that temptation, yeah, is there to cut corners or grant leniency. But the the one thing that you said is that Satan doesn't doesn't take a day off. Satan and hit the evil that's in this world uh, has no limits. And if uh, the people, you know, this army of God as as the church, if we underestimate or we fail uh, to to I think practice due diligence, who are the most vulnerable? Uh, and, and, for the yeah. children. Yeah. yeah, and exactly. So I and, think the question is, are we willing to do a little bit more, just a little bit more, in order to take the necessary steps to protect our children? Because your your question earlier is fantastic. That if and you've asked me this so many times, and you've you've asked so many other people this, that if we if we what we know now, we knew then, what would, would we would we do anything different? Right. And, 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 and if, and and if the, the answer is yes, yes, why would we wait? And so. And, and then just right parallel with that, we know that, you know, from our sources, from my sources at um, um, the people who do great background checks, 80% of churches don't do background checks. Hmm. So if your church does not do a background check and a child is harmed as a result of you not doing a background check, the question is, will you start doing background, background checks? Check. And then the answer probably to that is, I would hope, would be yes. So then the question is, who and how many are you going to sacrifice to get there? 
That is always the, uh, you know, that's always a question. And that's the difference between being proactive, reactive, and that's the difference between risk management and crisis leadership. Okay, crisis leadership is all about putting things in place to prevent things. Risk management is accepting the fact it's going to happen, happen. <laughs> okay, and we can't prevent it or we don't want to prevent it or we can't prevent it or we don't know how to prevent it, and we'll just deal with it when it happens. And so, um, you know, there's, there's that. And a lot, of, a lot of things that we've learned are from other people's mistakes. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's been my whole uh, policy in life. I've, you know, I used to see kids when I was in school that got caught stealing stuff at the, at the candy store and I saw them got in trouble. So that, hey, I'm not going to get in trouble because I'm not stealing candy. Because <laughs> <Right, laughs> <So, right. laughs> they always get caught, right? Yeah, so yeah, Every you know, single time. Yeah. Um, well, well, Dad, this has been, this has been great uh, for, for me. This has been, this has been a, a joy and I was always able to learn something from you. And I'm going to have to have you back on. Uh, because there's a lot more stories you have to tell, and there's a lot of other questions I didn't have the the time to get to uh, tonight. But thank you so much for stopping on by. I know you're going to be a fan favorite, um, and we'll just have to have you uh, back on in order to to whet that appetite some more. But uh, until then, Dad, thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you being on and having this opportunity in the platform. And if any, if there's any churches out there that are looking for guidance on a safety or security mission, uh, a ministry. You know, give me a call, get with me. Um, it's my passion, and I can guarantee you that that with whatever you have in your church, and that's the key thing, is that we're not looking to bring resources in that you don't have and spend money that you don't have. We can just take your thinking and move it about three degrees from one side to the other, just kind of, kind of get it off so you look at things a little bit differently. It's amazing what you can do with what you have. Yeah. Where you're you're using existing resources. Existing resources. And if people do want to contact you, how do they? How do they? Do you that? can call me on my cell phone number. Okay. For people who don't know you, how do they get in contact with you? So Dad? they they call me Scott Crable. They can call me at my my cell phone number, is four seven four four nine zero one area code five one seven. You can go to the, the my website at CrableSecurityConsultants.com. There's a website that's got contact information. You can email me at Scott.crable at gmail.com. I'll, I'll look at and see that. So there's a lot of different ways. Um, right. If you own a plane, fly it over my house <laughs> with a little streaky thing. and A little uh, banner. Yeah, a banner. Awesome. So, well, well, thanks, Dad. I appreciate you. I love you, Dad. And uh, I love you, too. And I'm very proud of what you've done, and I'm very proud of uh, your following what God's uh, called you to do. Well, I'm, I don't get any credit for doing what I'm supposed to do, but thank you anyway. <laughs> All right, have a good night. Thank you so much to Scott Crable or Dad. What an amazing conversation that was. There was a lot of stuff off mic that we didn't get to, but you guys wouldn't want to hear that anyway because it would just have been an incoherent mess of laughter and fumbling and mumbling over sentences. But I hope you got a sense of why my father does what he does, and maybe you could get a glimpse of, of that particular ministry, that sacrifice that he, he has given for the last 15 years. And in fact, we just honored him at my former home church, Jackson Nass Church here in Jackson, Michigan. He just got the Distinguished Service Award from the entire you know, Nazarene Church. Um, NMI is the one who gave him that award, and it's much deserved. So, Dad, thank you so much. I love you. 
and I pray that uh, people can continue to learn from you and your passion in the church. Thank you for those who have listened. Appreciate your listenership. Please subscribe and like this wherever you listen to podcasts. And I hope you guys have an amazing rest of your day wherever you are and whenever you are listening to this. You guys make it worth it. Thank you so much and may God bless you and keep you.